not. Thank you all again for being here. Take your Bibles, if you will. Take your very own copy of the Word of God. And no surprise, turn to Philippians chapter 4. I say no surprise because I sent a text out early in the week and invited you to join in with me in the study of Philippians chapter 4. And uh, I, hope that, uh, I hope that you got that text and I hope that you're following along in Philippians 4. Thank you very much, sir. Um, Philippians chapter 4. And uh, we're going to actually, it's going to be a two-part message here, but we're going to begin reading right there at verse number 1. We will prayerfully be back in the book of Matthew sometime in January, not next week, uh, but maybe after that. But look at verse number 1 again. The Bible says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Judas and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, probably a reference to Epaphroditus, but I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let's go to our Savior in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you very much this morning, and we are thankful for your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. We're thankful that you are a God who loves us, that you are a God who intervenes uh, in, in, our, in our lives, regardless of the season in which we may be, Lord, and we're so very thankful for that. We're thankful for the cross uh, this morning, Lord. I pray that you hide me behind the cross, and at the same time, Lord, use me uh, as I surrender, as I help me to surrender uh, to you, to your text, and what you have uh, for us this morning, Lord. We thank you so much, so very much for that. Lord, be with uh, my wife uh, over there with the children. Be with Amelia and, and, and the nursery, Lord. We thank you uh, so very much for that. Lord, be with uh, be with uh, Lisa and help her to get better and be, bring her back to us, Lord, and and again, we thank you for all those who are here this morning. We pray, Lord, that you just touch our hearts, uh, you touch our minds this morning, Lord, and help us to focus completely on your Son, Jesus Christ, this morning. Ignore whatever, however the holidays went, what's on the agenda for the year, Lord, coming before us, Lord, and help us just to focus on you and on who you are, Lord. Help, help us to really, truly understand that it's all about you and all about your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. We thank you for that, Lord. Again, we ask that you meet with us in a very special way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, again, to, to be up front with you, we'll, we'll not get to all these verses uh, this morning. I almost read through the entirety of that chapter there, which we will continue with next week. But I wanted to give us a, a, the fuller context of the first handful of verses there uh, and share with you why are, we are in Philippians chapter 4 this morning. Um, as you know, we've been going through, and I've already mentioned it, we've been going through the book of Matthew, and, and we will, God willing, continue with that. Um, but I think I shared with, this, uh, shared with you a couple of weeks ago, I, I generally don't preach topical messages, and I like to go along with the text. And uh, even when we come to a topic, I like to go verse by verse through the text, because it's the text that has the power. You don't really want to see what I have to say, you want to see what God has to say. Um, But the reason we are in Philippians chapter 4 is because recently uh, I heard about a Christian who had some anxiety about moving forward in some area in that person's life. And upon hearing that, the Lord immediately brought Philippians chapter 4 
verse 6 to my mind. I had to go look for it. I remember the verse, but I didn't really, uh, I knew it was in Philippians, but I had to find the verse. And look at, look at verse 6 again. It says, be careful, or the way we might understand it, be anxious for nothing. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And as I was contemplating on the great truth of that passage, the Lord also brought to my attention that I had let some anxiety creep into my life over some certain things. Maybe it's the building, or maybe it's the new year, or maybe it's the, the new grandbaby we have back in the States. Or all of those things uh, started to, the Lord brought back to my attention, or brought to my attention. Now, the word Paul used here for careful is merimnao in the Greek, and it means to be troubled with care over the future outcome of a certain event. Um, and this morning, I want to take that truth and apply it to the new year. As we look into the new year, we're not to be anxious about that new year. We're supposed to trust the Lord. Now, again, we'll come back to verse number 6. We will not get verse number 6 tonight, but I wanted to let you know how I got to Philippians chapter 4. Verse 6 will be the beginning part of the second half of the sermon next week. And I believe it will be a fitting topic, today's sermon and, to, and next week's sermon, to how we go into this next new year. So notice again, as we go for today's sermon, look at verse number 1 again. The Bible says, Paul writes, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. So if I can put all that summarized, it's, Therefore, my brethren, stand fast in the Lord. Stand fast in the Lord. That's going to be our title this morning, Stand Fast in the Lord. If this thing can work here, there we go. Stand fast in the Lord. You know, that word, stand fast, is actually one word uh, in the original, and it conveys the idea of, no kidding, standing fast. It's kind of a, we, we understand that in the military, right? Standing fast. But it kind of conveys the idea of, of staying the course, or persevering, or keeping the cause of Christ, in our context here, keeping the cause of Christ paramount in all that we do, staying at it, keeping, keep, keep at keeping on, if you will. And I'm persuaded that as I was studying this passage early in the week, I'm persuaded that this is what we need to finish out this year strong and to go into the next year focusing on Jesus Christ. It is certainly the message that I need to hear, standing fast in the Lord. You know, as we, as we embark on another year, 2024, I mean, you remember Y2K? <laughs> we don't hear about that anymore, do we? I mean, 24 years from that. I mean, 23 years uh, uh, being at, at war, if you will, on terror uh, for the Americans and, and many other nations. But as we embark on this next year, every child of God, every born-again believer should enter this next phase with the commitment to stand fast in the Lord. That should be our goal and not just for the year or for the month, but really every day, Lord, help me stand fast in you. This should be a daily commitment. And you might ask, you probably won't ask this, but I'll ask it for you. Why should we have such a commitment to our Savior? Why should we, why should we be so committed to Jesus Christ? Well, notice again that verse 1 begins with that word, therefore. And as many uh, Bible scholars put it, we've got we to look at why the, there, why the therefore, what it's there for. You know, or I know I messed that up, but you get it. Uh, but anyway, that word grammatically connects us to the last part of chapter 3, the verses preceding it. Look at verse number 20. Um, for our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, 
that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. There's enough in that in those two verses for us to be completely sold out for Jesus Christ, for us to be all in. And we'll talk just about a handful of them, but there's ample just in these two verses, and the Bible, no surprise, is filled with many, many verses, right? But just in those two, we see enough. That word conversation that Paul speaks about is actually a reference to how we are in the know by what has been communicated to us specifically because of our status as Christians in a certain community. In other words, Paul is writing about the privilege of citizenship in this passage, but not in some earthly community, a citizenship in heaven with God. I mean, what more reason do you and I have to stand fast in the Lord? We are citizens of a greater kingdom, a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. But notice also that Paul continues speaking about that citizenship, that conversation from whence, from there, we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So because of our status, we look forward to the Savior's return. We're going to begin this morning, as we are right now, speaking or at least referencing the Lord's return, and we're going to end with a reference to the Lord's return. So this passage here tells us that we are to look for, because of our citizenship, we will be really in that citizenship with God. We look forward to His return. But He doesn't just come to take us to our heavenly community as if that weren't great enough. But notice in the text that He fixes us. We're broken. Even even as believers, born-again believers, we are broken. He fixes us. He, He fashions us after Himself. Look at that. He says that we shall change our... He shall change our vile body to be fashioned like unto His glorious body. You know, 1 John 3, 2 tells us, John writes there, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, when Jesus shall appear, we shall be like him, like Jesus, for we shall see him as he is. Now, we're not going to be gods, we're not going to be a part of that, but we will be sons of God. We will be glorified, we will be made like unto his glorified body. But before Paul reaches the therefore in our passage this morning, there in chapter number 4, he adds one more truth at the end of chapter 3, in that the Lord Jesus, look at that passage there, is able even to subdue all things unto himself. How many things? All things. All things. And friends, all means all. In the context of our application, it means every situation, every outcome, every problem, every shortcoming, every struggle, whatever we're facing, God is able to subdue all things unto himself. That word subdue, is, it means to bring into subjection. God can bring all these things into subjection. But with that thought comes really two things kind of come to light, probably many more. But first, I want to point out and and this is not a surprise to you, but we are not in heaven yet. And all things have not been brought into subjection yet. There is a time there in the, in the first part of Colossians chapter, chapter 1, and uh, John even alludes to it later on, and I think even the book of Revelation, it talks about in the end, when Jesus has brought all of creation under subjection to him, Jesus gives it back to the Lord. So that has not yet happened yet. So that's the first thing that comes to light. We are not in heaven, and all things have not been brought into subjection yet. And number two, God chooses, our God, 
our Savior, our Redeemer, chooses to operate through man. I mean, what a concept. Our God chooses to condescend himself and to work through us, to work through his, his fallen creation. In other words, in accordance with this text, God has a plan, you are in his plan, and the end state is far greater than we can imagine. It's a heavenly citizenship in a body like his. So not only will our faith become sight one day as citizens of that great kingdom, um, we will be fashioned like unto his glorious body. And because of all that, and certainly, certainly many, many more things, Paul wrote, therefore, 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 my brethren, stand fast in the Lord. Stand fast in the Lord. And I think God is telling us today, as we finish out this year, stand fast in the Lord. We're to stay the course. Stay the course. While there are many truths and many applications in this chapter, again, in two sermons, I'd like to highlight six or seven imperatives from the Holy Spirit that have followed, I believe, enable us to stand fast in the Lord. I know I just said two sermons. I won't preach them both today. uh, I promise. And I also promise that we will get out of here before our evening fellowship. So that's my two promises this morning, uh, which is at 2200. But anyway, uh, back in the text here, notice first that under the inspiration of God and in verse number two, Paul strongly urged that Eudeus and Syntyche be of the same mind in the Lord. And from that, we're going to pull out a, a truth that says that we are to be united in the Lord. Part of standing fast in the Lord is to be united in the Lord. Now, these are actually two women in the text. And apparently they had such a falling out between each other that news of their conflict had not only reached the Apostle Paul, who was in prison. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, he's there in prison, he's down at the bottom, whatever it may be. And, you know, Luke maybe comes to him, he's like, have you heard about these two? (laughs) And Paul writes to them. So not only did it reach Paul, but they, their argument had an impact in the church that they were serving in. And Paul implores them to be of the same mind in the Lord. So in an otherwise very positive letter from Paul to the Philippian church, this conflict, it's like the whole, it's like the whole, um, the whole letter leading up to the end state there in, in chapter 4 at the end of it, is, is coming to this, this point here that Paul's going, hey, I've I got to do some correcting here. I've got to tell you about these, this, this individual. You need to be of the same mind. But, you know, think about this. How would you like to be... So if we understand the way church history went, uh, Paul or uh, this church would get the letter from Paul. He would send a letter maybe at the hand of Luke. The, the church, probably this one is at the hand of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus gets there. He, op- he breaks the seal on the scroll. He opens the scroll and he begins to read in the church setting much like we are right now. So with that said, how would you like to be one of those two women? Can you imagine? You're like, can you imagine? I mean, huh. Furthermore, their conflict is now forever recorded in the Word of God. How would you like your conflicts to be recorded in the Word of God? I would not. You know, when we get to heaven, when we maybe bump into one of these two women, we can ask them, what in the world were you arguing about? What point of contention was worth an apostolic mention? I don't think it was what they were arguing about. It's that they were arguing is what causes uh, causes this uh, reaction by the Apostle Paul. And I personally believe that when we do bump in them, their response is, is, is going to be either um, what, that what they were arguing about really had no internal impact, and they 
may not even remember it, which is kind of the point Paul is trying to make here, um, because their argument was ridiculously petty, or um, that, again, they don't remember. So I'm sure there are many, many other potential responses, but Paul here in the text, I love how he deals with it. Paul is known through his writings of dealing with an issue and then moving on. He doesn't dwell on it unless it needs to be dwelt on, but mostly he'll mention something, he'll give a Bible reference, why you shouldn't be doing that or why you should be doing something you're not doing, and then he'll move on. Again, there are potential other responses that we will hear from when we bump into these two um, ladies in heaven. But Paul gives the best reason, I think, for Christians not to argue about things that have no eternal value at the end of the next verse, which states that their names are in the book of life. I mean, where are their names at again? The book of life. The book of life. We can, you and I can disagree on just about everything. From politics to world events, from sports to your, to your favorite restaurant, whatever it may be. But we are to be of the same mind in the Lord. The same mind in the Lord. If the scriptures were still being written today, we might make it into the letter written to Hohenfels chapter 4 because of some of the conflicts that we might have. I'm not speaking of anything in specific. But we are to be of the same mind because our names are in the book. Our names are in the book of life. It literally does not get better than that. Our names are in the book of life, speaking of that citizenship again. There's really no comparison to that, but our bickering, the bickering between Christians of the same church, is like two billionaires fighting over a penny, over a dollar maybe. It just doesn't make any sense. Now, sense, S-E-N-S-E. <laughs> but I realize that people have differences. You and I have differences. But as a church, we are not to be defined by those differences. That's the difference. We are not to be defined by what we believe different, or, or, or and to a certain extent what we believe different, uh, but what we feel about our favorite sports team or our favorite whatever, you know, if it's Army versus Navy or Marines or whatever, we all know it's Army, right, Brother Roby? <laughs> so we, we, all these things don't matter. But we are to be defined by our, my, our same mind in, in Jesus Christ. You know, in the book of Nehemiah, Right before Ezra preached, the Bible specifically says from a wooden, a wooden pulpit, but right before he preached, the Bible states that the people gathered them to, themselves together as one man. They came together as one man. That speaks of the same mind. Even in this passage in, in Philippians 2.5, Paul writes, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This mind of gathered together as one man. That's what Paul is getting at here in chapter 4, specifically with those two women who are arguing. Which in the book of Ezra, their coming together was really a major part of revival uh, there in, uh, in, in Israel or Judah after, after the, in, in the exile. What's our takeaway from the text? The disagreements that, that are between true Christians are never to cause unrest in our hearts or in our churches. We are to be united in the Lord. I, I get it. We're not perfect. We make some mistakes. But our goal in those conflicts should always be reconciliation should always be reconciled. In fact, every conflict that we have, whether it's in your marriage or with your children, the goal going into that when you figure out that I shouldn't be arguing, your goal should be reconciliation. This helps us stand fast and it helps us stand strong in the Lord. We need unity in the church. 
We need unity in the family and, and everything. that need. Don't, don't buy into the world's definition of strength because when it comes to being a part of uh, being a Christian, a part of the New Testament church, it's unity that's our strength, not diversity. Unity is our strength. Unity helps us stand fast. Yes, Paul speaks of diversity in gifts, but unity in spirit, unity in Christ, unity in doctrine, unity in truth. We don't need variations of doctrinal beliefs in the church. We need unity in the church. This helps us as a church stand 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, all, all the way to the, Lord ter- or to the Lord returns. This helps us persevere. But as we continue on, we also see in verse number 3, the Bible, um, Paul here, under the inspiration of God, gives us some very practical guidance on how to keep those conflicts in the church at a minimum, which again enables us to stand fast, which is our goal moving forward. Notice, notice verse 3 again. Paul, write, uh, Paul wrote, and I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Now, notice Paul's emphasis on laboring and helping. One verse, four words about laboring, yoke fellow, labored, help, fellow laborers. So we see in this text, just by a description of what's going on in there and his exhortation, we see that service can be a remedy for conflict. Service can be a re- um, He says, I beseech Eudeus in verse 3, or verse 2 rather, in verse 3, I entreat thee also, probably again Epaphroditus, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me. Help them, service, help them, serve the people. So we see, or we learn from this text, that we are not only to be united in the Lord, but we are to serve in the Lord. Notice that I, I purposely didn't say serve the Lord. We know that's a given. We are to serve also in the Lord, in the Lord. Again, we must not forget the context of this verse, in that it's connected to the friction between two women in the church, between two people. It doesn't have to be women. It can be a man and a woman. It can be a husband and a wife. There's friction in this church here, and that's what's causing him to write part of this chapter here. But speaking of friction, I want to, I want to point out that, you know, friction happens when one item goes against another. Right? We understand how friction works. And for the record, I want to also point out that not all friction is bad. Not all friction is bad. The Bible states in Proverbs 27, 17, that iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. So if you can take your mind's eye, if you will, and imagine a knife being sharpened on a, on a stone or, or maybe a, a file, it causes friction resulting in a sharper edge. But the secret, if we can add... Um, humanity to each one of those um, items there, the secret to reaching the end state of a sharp knife is that the blade and the stone have a desire for the same outcome, right? They both want the blade to be sharpened. So for a man to sharpen the countenance of his friend, he doesn't go in with correcting and all those things like that. His goal must be to sharpen the countenance of his friend. Any other goal is not the right goal. For Christians, our goal is Jesus Christ. In the context of this passage here, specifically verse 2, the goal is unity in Christ. But here in verse 3, I would argue that the goal is service in the Lord, service in Christ. Jesus is our goal, yes, but more practically, we work together in him to reach his goals. We reach his goals. In fact, 1 Corinthians 3.9 says that we are laborers together with God. We're co-laborers with Jesus Christ. 
But from this text, we learn that not only do we labor with God, we are to labor or we are to serve with and alongside of each other. Each other. We, we serve with each other. Now, it's not the main thrust of the text here, but actually being a faithful member of a New Testament church is strongly implied here. It is God's plan for his followers to work together in local churches, much like this one around the world. Eudeus and Syntyche would not have been encouraged to move forward if they were not a part of the Philippian church. They would not have the spiritual growth that we can assume happened from this text here. The relationships that you and I have at church should be strong relationships. They should be close relationships. They should be like a bond between brothers. Notice the first word there in verse number 3 that speaks of a combined service in the Lord in God's church. He says the word yoke fellow. Yoke fellow. Now that word in itself has some strong implications, yes? I mean, do we wear yokes? No, we don't wear yokes. We're not oxen. We don't. We're, but that's the that's the con, the context he's trying to the point he's trying to convey here. We are yoke fellows. Strong implications here. That word means to be united by the bond of labor, united in the same cause. That's what Paul is trying to say here, or is saying. And by definition, we as members of his church are all, believe it or not, are all yoke fellows. Yoke fellows together in the service of the Lord. And as a yoke, you can see, if you're not all going the same direction, it's quite difficult. Uh, We all need to be in unity, being yoked together in the service of the Lord. Jesus designed his church, even this church, to be filled with baptized believers yoked together in service to him. This ministry, Holmfeld's Baptist Church, is a shared burden purposed to bring great glory to Jesus Christ. We are yoke fellows together. I enjoy being a yoke fellow with you, being in the service of our Lord together. We, You and I all together have the shared burden to maintain a gospel witness here in this community and even around the world beyond our community. We serve God together. It's greater than Uncle Sam. It's greater than wherever you work at. We serve God together. We serve Jesus together. That needs to mean something to us. And the greatness of that truth here, this wonderful truth, is no doubt what led Paul to pen the next verse, which states, Rejoice! We serve God together. Rejoice in the Lord. Always, and again, I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. You know, I kind of look at that. I used to be in the army for a while, and I said, "How, How shall a soldier of the Lord stand fast in the Lord? How shall I persevere? Well, we must have the same mind in the Lord, and we must be united in our service to the Lord. And here in this text, verse number 4, we see that we are to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. I mean, think for a moment, who is writing this letter? The Apostle Paul. And think about who he is writing this letter to. This, again, is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi, a city that he's been to, a city that he has visited a couple times. But on his first visit to Philippi, and following his Macedonian call, as some put it, Paul was with Silas, and let's just say their first visit to Philippi was a little bit less than cordial. Y'all remember, right? In fact, they were thrown in prison. Luke tells us in Acts 16 that Paul freed a damsel possessed with a spirit of divination, And the local authorities violently disapproved of Paul's actions. 
Acts 16.23 states that they laid many stripes on Paul and, and Silas, and they cast him into the prison, and they cast that jailer there to keep them safely, which down in the deepest part of that prison, which means, I guess we would call that maximum security. You know, my son actually is a, is a, is a prison guard on death row there in Nashville, Tennessee, at 19 years old, mind-boggling. I know, I, I don't understand that. But it doesn't seem to bother him too much. And the way they secure those, they're up, they're up on, a, on another floor. You have to get through like three or four different um, entryways to get there. It, Paul was secure. Let's just put it that way. He was in a maximum security prison there in Philippi, the best they could probably do to keep a man from getting away. And, and on top of that, he was beaten and so forth. So there they were, if you can imagine, in the darkest part of that prison in Philippi, beaten nearly half to death, probably tired, hungry, thirsty, and in severe pain, a condition that probably most of us can't even fathom. Do they complain? No. Do they play the victim card? No. Do they, do they wallow in their self-pity? Not a chance. Acts 16.25 says that at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. I don't know about you, but if I followed the the Macedonian call, if you will. There I am in Tennessee following the Lord to bring him here. And within, within a couple days, I find myself in a, in a Bavarian prison. You know, I, I'd like to say that I would stand up and sing praises at midnight or whatever time it may be. But we know from the scriptures that this is exactly what Paul did. And we know the rest of the story. God sent an earthquake to that prison. And it broke the chains loose from the ground. And through their rejoicing, that jailer believed and received Christ as his personal Savior. That jailer, along with his family, was no doubt in the audience. In my opinion, if he was still alive, was probably still there when this letter was being written or read to the people. Can you imagine some 10 years later now, that jailer there with his family whom, whom Paul baptized and led to the Lord and baptized? I think we can be sure that when that jailer heard that Paul wrote that we are to rejoice in the Lord always, he knew that Paul meant what he wrote. He probably remembered a few years back seeing Paul by the light of a torch, leaning maybe on one leg and, and blood dripping down from his feet and maybe with a busted lip and a black eye, singing praises to the Lord. And on top of all those memories... The very letter being read by Epaphroditus there in that congregation probably smelt like it came from a prison because that's where it came from. So Paul rejoiced in a Philippian prison, and he was currently rejoicing from a Roman prison. And in his broken, Paul's broken and confined status, he is writing a letter to the unbroken and free Christians at Philippi, encouraging them to rejoice. Don't be worried about you know, how long the line is at Netto. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And if you think about it, in all that, Paul is nothing more than a role model. For it is Christ that Paul patterned his life after. It is Christ that we should pattern our lives after, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The joy of the cross, that's our Savior. And right before Paul penned verse number four, he wrote about those names in the book of life. Friends, there is nothing in this world that we should allow to steal our joy in the Lord. Don't let, don't let the word take it from you. 
Paul wrote in Romans 8.18, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which, we shall, which shall be revealed in us. Don't let the circumstances of this world take the joy of the Lord from you. Paul says rejoice in the Lord always, and he means always. God, through him, means always. And again, I say rejoice, 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 rejoice. You know, praising God, practically speaking, keeps our focus on God, off the circumstances, but it keeps us on God. If we, if you and I have any desire to finish this year strong, if we have any desire at all to stand fast in the Lord going forward into the next year, choose to praise God. Choose to praise God as the first response to all of life's ups and downs. Praise God. Praise God. And without a doubt, this will keep us on the right path. It will keep us standing strong. But no surprise, Paul doesn't stop there, does he? Notice again verse number 5 which will be our last verse this morning. But he says, Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. So very simply, I'm going to pull the word right out of the verse there. We are to be moderate in the Lord. We are to be moderate in the Lord. Now that word Paul uses for moderation is closely related to gentleness. It's actually, if you ever studied Greeks, uh, concordance and stuff like that, and they got you know, the G's and the numbers, it's one number different from gentleness and meekness and mildness and so forth. But it has a nod towards what is considered appropriate. Uh, in this aspect, it is not to be, it means not to be abrasive. So this verse, I want to point out this morning that it's not a proof text against legalism. It's not a proof text following, uh, to not follow the letter of the law. God most definitely wants us, even demands us to live holy lives, which the latter half of this chapter tells us very clearly. So in other words, by, by writing, let your moderation be known unto all men, Paul is not arguing against being what we might call an extreme or a radical Christian today. And how do we know that? Well, number one, in context, he is dealing again with a current conflict, and he's using that conflict as a springboard to talk about our behavior, not just in that conflict, but all the time among all men, right? And number two, we would probably consider all of the apostles radical today. We would probably look at their lives, well, they're all, they're all too radical for us today. They would all be strong or, or, or far right or whatever you want to call that, far left. I don't know how you want to understand that, but they would all be radical to us today. So that's not what he's talking about. And, and if you think about it, holiness today among godly men and women tends to be intimidating, uh, or at least that's the word I, I can use, to those who don't share those same standards or commitment to holiness. And instead of being an example, they are mocked as ignorant or, or legalism or radicals. We ought to follow the book regardless of what the world thinks of it. Paul's moderation here is actually not a reference to Christians living too holy. It's a reference to the spectrum of their behavior. It's a reference to the spectrum of their attitude. It is a plea for Christians to have a moderate attitude in all things before all men, even an imperative In other words, Christians are to be, if I can put it this way, level-headed and emotionally stable. That's what Paul's getting at here. We are not to lose our composure. We are not to give in and say or do things that we know that we should not say or do. We are to be sober-minded, and we are to exercise self-control at all times. And by self-control, I mean that we are to take charge of me, all of me. I'm to take charge of self. We are to be in complete control of self and then surrender that self 
to Jesus Christ. You cannot surrender that which you do not have control over. Take control over all of yourself and then surrender that, and that's how we get to be moderate in all things. In fact, the word used for moderation is also closely related to the word forbearance or to surrender or even submission. We could really and truly read that verse as let your submission to Christ be known unto all men. Now, this doesn't mean that we are not to have emotion. For Jesus himself wept. He got angry once or twice, and he was a firm and stern preacher of the word. But that our emotions are to be moved by truth and not by noise. Things that matter to God should make us happy, sad, stern, or angry, not things which have no value before God. We are to choose to be sad, choose to be firm, choose to be angry, and not let the circumstances choose our response. Many, many today, even, even Christians, go through life as, it, as if we were living in a pinball machine. You know, well, this thing happens and this thing. We go from emotion to emotion, bouncing from one event to the other. That's not what it means to let your moderation be known unto all men. James chapter 1 Verse 6 says, He that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. And speaking of that wavering man, he continues in verse 7 and 8, Let not that man, that wavering man, think that he shall receive anything of the Lord, because a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Friends, the winds of life are not to drive us as if we had no direction. We have a direction. We are to stand firm. We are to stand fast in the Lord May we all, including me, be encouraged to enter the next year focused on Jesus Christ. Not on how many days we can get off, not how much money we can get, not if I get a promotion or a raise. Jesus Christ. He is the key to a successful standing firm um, into the next year. May you and I be anchored in the rock of our salvation and let the steadfastness of that anchor... So. I'm going to say that again. May be anchored in the rock of our salvation and let the steadfastness that that anchor provides be projected through every area of our life for all men to see. Why? Because at the end of verse number 5, Paul wrote, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Put differently, let all men see your moderation because the return of Christ is near. We may not be able to, or even willing to reach everyone around us with the gospel, verbally. But our demeanor will often go further than we expect. It often goes way further than we we expect. And the last half of that verse there, in verse number 5, makes the first half of that verse evangelistic. Right? The Lord is at hand, and you might be the only gospel some people come in contact with. Your behavior might be the only gospel they get a glimpse of. You know, many have heard the story of John Wesley. Anybody heard of John Wesley before? English, English preacher? back in the 1700s? Well, he, he was a, a man, a, God, a man whom God used greatly in the American colonies before, they were, before the Declaration of Independence. Uh, you may not have heard about the Moravians. Maybe you have. But during that era, a large population of Christian Moravians, which is right across the Czech border here, uh, they volunteered, Christian Moravians volunteered themselves into servitude among the merchant ships which traveled the world with the complete goal to spread the gospel. Can you imagine? I surrender all that I am to work for you for the rest of my life 
So I can go from city to city to city to city on these merchant ships telling people about Jesus Christ. Well, John Wesley was on board one of those ships. And he was headed to America thinking he was spreading the gospel. This is from his own writings. And they hit a life-threatening storm on the ocean there. And most of the Englishmen, even the professed Christians in there, most of them uh, greatly feared. And many of them panicked that they were going to die. It's even said that um, some, some uh, Englishmen brought a, a baby to John Wesley, hey, baptize him because we might die. Uh, obviously, that's not what we do here, but that's kind of the, it kind of gives you an idea of how, they, how fearful they were. Well, the Moravians were not fearful. They were calm. In John Wesley's own writings, he said that even the women and the children on the boat were not visibly afraid of the storm. Many were singing praises as the waves were coming over as they served the shipmaster during the storm. And Wesley was deeply moved by their moderation. And he directly attributes that event to his um, upcoming conversion to Jesus Christ. He said, they showed me that it's, they had a faith in God that I didn't have. And again, he, he directly attributes his own coming to Christ to this very event. You know, it, it may or may not be God's plan for you to sail the seas as a slave in order to spread the gospel message. Pro- probably not. But our moderate service to God through life's trials is a part of God's plan. And the secret is not to muster up the strength and serve God in our own power. The secret is not to pull yourself up by your bootstraps or go to work, so to speak. That's only half the equation. In reality, as Christians, we are to gird up all that we are and give it to God. In a military, at least when I was in the military, we had this thing called kidding up right before the, right before the patrol. So, and that's like the best you can do. That you're, you're, you're all ready for the battle. But we are to kid up as Christians, if you will, and surrender all the way you are to Jesus. That's the secret to moderation. And as you and I this, uh, this morning slide into the new year, may that be our goal. May this be our goal as well. May we, as Paul put it in Philippians chapter 3, forget those things which are behind, move forward and reach for those things which are before, and press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So as we close this morning, how do we persevere? How do we stand fast in the Lord? We let our moderation be known unto all men, for the Lord is at hand. We rejoice in the Lord always. We serve alongside each other as yoke fellows for the cause of Christ, and we do so having the same mind in the Lord. Don't be anxious going forward into the new year. Be focused on Jesus Christ. Make a commitment today to serve Him with all that you are the rest of this year and on into the next, but re-blew that commitment, if you will, every single day because it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to stand fast in the Lord. Now let's, let's go to him in prayer.